I've had a question for you, Michael, that involves Chris. How do we get his mic to not peak so much when he starts yelling? Oh, man. Michael Chan, welcome back to FS Jam. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Great to have you. We're going to be getting into Storybook and Chromatic because you are now, is your role a developer advocate for Chromatic? Yeah, so at Chromatic, we don't really have like developer advocate roles. Like there's this really interesting philosophy that everyone in any role at Chromatic should be some level of engineer. I think as we grow, I'm sure that that will change or adapt or whatever. So I think my official title, which I'd never use anywhere, is like DX Community Engineer which is a mouthful. I know that Demetrius Clark has a really similar title at Netlify. So maybe it's gaining some traction. I don't know. Who knows? That's cool. So instead of just talking titles, why don't we talk responsibilities? And what do you do day to day? Like what is a day in the life of Michael Chan like? That's a really interesting question. Let's talk about kind of like things in the abstract for a second. Like there's this weird thing that kind of happened where React Podcast fell off a cliff for me. In the time afterwards, it was interesting because a lot of people's interest in me when they were reaching out to me or like interest in having me on their team turned into more of podcasting, media creation, DevX type of stuff. And it was kind of like a weird thing for me because I mean, I guess up to that point, hadn't really thought about myself as, I don't know, I'm putting my fingers up like a creator which is hilarious to me that's all i've ever seen you do that's how i got to know you and why you and i even know each other in the first place and it's so funny i think it's like we don't really have a good sense of like who we are to the rest of the world i think but i really did learn that through the last handful of years of react podcast that you are what you show at least to other people if you're regularly showing something that is how they're going to think of you so while I was doing engineering, design systems, front-end architecture, like that was my work, and I'd occasionally tweet about it, really what people knew me for doing was React Podcast. Yeah, that was really interesting when uh, things kind of blew up at my previous job and did not end well. And I was just kind of randomly, I think it started with swag, whatever. I was like, I saw some storybook swag. And I was like, that's like a sick mask. Like, I want to rock that storybook mask. And I reached out to Dom. He hooked me up with some swag and said, hey, if you're ever looking for work, we want you like all the stuff that you're doing, like we want you to do it here. So now it's kind of fun. What I'm doing at Chromatic right now is working on some of our external marketing programs is kind of the bucket that we've put all this stuff into. What that includes is I'm doing a new YouTube series called Storytime with Chantastic. Once a month, I interview someone who is kind of related to Storybook or Chromatic at a company utilizing those things to build out teams or build out design systems. So once a month, I'll interview someone from that. So I've talked with Brad Frost about atomic design, talked with Ryan Bayhan from Shopify about how they're kind of building their team and their workflows around that for their design systems. Just recently talked with Tom Preston Warner, who you know, obviously from Redwood. This is what I wanted to get into because people who listen to this podcast usually are at least somewhat familiar with Redwood, not everyone, but it's a good assumption they've at least heard of it. And Storybook is a really key component of Redwood. We have invested very heavily in making Storybook part of the framework. And so when you joined the team, I was like, great, like I bet we're gonna, you know, see Michael Chan now in the Redwood Storybook shared Slack, which has happened. Really love to get like a description of what Storybook is. And then we can talk about how chromatic relates to that. Because I think 
think teasing these two things apart can be a little challenging if people aren't already familiar with it. I would love to first start with like storybook and give like the 101 on that. And then we can talk about how chromatic kind of relates to that. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, and I appreciate you uh, having me on to talk about this stuff. My manager will be extremely happy that we're answering these questions. I think something that I really love about my job is that I was a really bad user of Storybook. I used Storybook and Chromatic, but like the most surface possible way that you could use both of them. I felt like pretty good about myself for just having even done it at all. But literally like every day I'm learning stuff and because we're such a small team at Chromatic, everybody takes a turn on the support rotation. So once a week, we're hanging out in support and answering questions for people. And I swear, like I feel like the biggest storybook chromatic noob every day that I have to do that because I'm like I didn't even know it did this I didn't know it did that I can't believe it does this like it did this all that time like I wasted so much time trying to do this the other way so it's like a very like eye-opening experience like holy sh I hope I can say sh on this show oh yeah let them fly <laughs> let them fly we had kids on not too long ago so <laughs> perfect yeah and I was just like oh man I'm learning so much but the separation is interesting so storybook in itself is a way for you to document and test components now I actually think that it's actually a really great development environment too and we can talk about that later but the idea is that you'd be able to like develop in an environment in so doing that you would be able to also document document your components. So by developing in this environment, you're also documenting various states that you might be concerned with in that component. And then there's various layers of testing integration that you can choose to opt into after that. Right now, they've actually done a ton of work to introduce a um, test runner. Now you can actually run like your just test suite like on your UI components inside of Storybook and actually like see a lot of that stuff happen in real time. There's some really cool integrations there and that's really awesome. So if you're used to using testing library or React testing library, you now have what we like to call like a GUI for React testing library. So you can actually see this stuff almost kind of like Cypress where you can see it play out on your components inside of Storybook. Super cool stuff there. Now, the way that I think about Chromatic, there's a whole bundle of features that chromatic offers but i see chromatic as being another piece of that testing idea so storybook kind of brings you up to the certain point and drops you off at chromatic so chromatic is this really killer integration that by default if you were just to like install chromatic add it to your ci pipeline and not do anything else what you get is this really cool visual regression testing on your storybook I think a lot of people are really familiar with Netlify like branch deploys now. So you put up a branch, open up a PR, it'll deploy that branch and kind of preview all the stuff that is different in there. Chromatic does something really similar where every time you open up a pull request or a branch or whatever, it's going to run that version of your storybook. It's going to create that version of storybook and like deploy it to the cloud somewhere. So you can look at that storybook just isolated in time, but then also it's going to compare it to the last storybook that you actually merged, which is really cool. So you have a storybook, maybe it's for your design system. That's version one. You want to make sure that nothing changes. You can make additions, but that nothing breaks after your kind of like public API of those components. You code along, you start adding some features, and then along the way, Chromatic CI is running in the background, running these visual diffs against your storybooks for each branch. You see green, like everything's good. You know that everything's fine. You can merge it, at least for as much as you've tested it. But then you'll get these diffs saying like, oh, hey, this story changed. Did you intend to change that? If so, you can update the snapshot and then we can like merge it. 
it's really cool and it's taken so much of that i i know the the reason this was like such an unlock for me doing front end architecture and design systems was like i didn't have to think about all like all of those things that were in my brain of like oh okay if we change this api like then this component over here is going to break if we change this for this app then like this app over here is going to break as well and so like being able to have all that stored away in this thing it's like i was able to unload so much like off of my mind and be like hey if the test passed then like that's great if we ship something and the tests said they were green it means that we haven't tested it thoroughly enough that kind of stuff is great and then also it took away all that like browser testing stuff because we support like all the major browsers and like ie honestly like chromatic is like a godsend it's like a lot of people complain about like storybook just being like a gallery of components you're like oh yeah like you know why would i do storybook like i can just like make a new route in astro or whatever and like that's my design system and it's like, yeah, totally, you can. But like, that doesn't opt you into chromatic, which offloads all of the like historical like UI decisions that we've ever made <laughs> across all of the browsers. Yeah, I want to interject with a couple descriptions I think that might be useful for people who have never used Storybook because this is one of those things that this is a very difficult topic for podcasts because this is a highly visual tool. The first time that I used it, I remember I was in a Redwood app and you like run a Redwood command. And what it does is in addition to like your front end being run on like port 8, 9, 10, you get a whole separate port running this thing called a Storybook. And a Storybook is a bit like almost like a code editor in that it has like a drop down on the left, which you have like files and components and you can go see those in their different places. And with Redwood, this is great because Redwood has this concept called a cell, which is a way to declaratively state whether your component is like loading or empty or has a failure state or a success state. And so you can click through each of those and just see them. So if you're creating a loading spinner, you can just see that loading spinner. And then if you want to see like what your failure looks like, then you can just go check your error message and things like that. And I remember the first time I used it, the way I described it is I felt like um, Wizard of Oz and it was like Dorothy's stepping out and all of a sudden everything is in color because I could see all of my components and they were just all there and it was like it was a revelation for me because I had been doing all these weird hacks to test these components in these different states and it was like such a hassle and then once I realized okay that's why this thing was invented but then as you're saying once you have that the downstream effect is you also can then build this whole test suite around it so I think that now it's become like a really sophisticated system that can do a lot. I know you've also called Chromatic Storybook for the cloud. So it hosts things as well. Is that true? So that's actually one of the most like, like, if you think about features of Chromatic as like a train of things that you would want to like unlock, like unlockable features, I guess. The first thing is that it's actually a really great way to host a storybook when you install storybook there's that build storybook command and you can use that to create a static artifact where you can put anywhere netlify Vercel, like throw it on aws s3 bucket wherever you want to put it you can put it but you get a lot of cool things when you use chromatic the biggest thing is embeds this is actually like one of the coolest unlocks for me if you're doing a design system which i think storybook is used a lot for like design systems and component libraries you can now take that and now every story is embeddable. So if you use something like zero height, which is a little bit more for like strictly design systems. I have no idea what that is. Okay, yeah. So there's a handful of tools. Like I think Envision has some, zero height has some tools that are designed for 
creating a design system, but not a component library, if this makes sense. I know that this this line is very thin for people. Yeah, you're going to have to define those two terms and what the difference because I know people have heard both of those terms and I'm sure have a wide range of ideas of what those mean. Yeah, so let's take a second and split those up. Design systems are a little bit more wide reaching. So the whole notion of a design system is, is that you would have a single language that is adapted to multiple platforms, like a single design language that's adjusted to multiple platforms. So think McDonald's. McDonald's has a wide breadth of things that it needs to consider. It needs to consider billboards. They have billboards. It needs to consider like mobile advertisements. It's also going to have some you know print menus. It's going to have some displayed menus both on the outdoor and like the indoor. And all of these have like very slightly different disciplines. You got mobile app, website, like all kinds of stuff. They're all over the place. Nike, like think about these big brands that are just everywhere. Maybe they have like a movie trailer ad. All of these are going to have different constraints, but the design system should be in place to govern the things that don't change and allow for breakages on those various constraints. It's not at all tied to a single medium. It's the whole brand, the brand as a whole, what a business cards look like. It's a much broader thing. Now, we as engineers, we think that everything relates to exactly the one thing that we care about. So when we hear design systems, we think about components and the components that we're implementing. So we've effectively co-opted design systems on the web to mean component libraries that implement design systems. That's kind of like an important separation when you think about some of the tools in this space is that like a design system is not a component library. A component library is an artifact governed by a design system typically. And that's going to scale. I mean, like if you're running a startup, they're probably going to be indistinguishable because really what you're focused on is like the web or like a mobile app. And it's just going to be like, you know, maybe you're sharing componentry across those two and your design system really is components. But at some point as you grow, so too does the design system separate from a component library. And it's important to keep those two things kind of like separated. Now, tools like Zero Height and Envision, think about it a little bit more like Notion. So it's a little bit more adaptable or like Figma, where you're making changes visually inside the tool, you're actually making changes. And then, you know, so you might change copy or some like rules, or you might change a screenshot of this thing, but it's a little bit more screenshot driven to describe the constraints of your design system. Storybook takes like the completely opposite approach where it focuses specifically on engineers, like it's all based on components. If you want to commit a text change, you literally have to commit it in Git. There's not a way for a PM to come in and change things unless they have Git access. The benefit that you get from that is that it's like testable. You have strict versions, you can, you know, merge and reverse things. So the thing is the two tools kind of like live in the same world, but there's not like a lot of connective tissue because one set of things you really want to have versions and mergeability and control over like how things are managed technically. And then on the other side, it's like you want that freedom of just kind of like running in, changing text the way that you would and like what you see is what you get type of editor. So the cool thing is, is that if you have a hosted chromatic, you can actually embed your stories, which are versioned and from code into tools like Zero Height, Notion, Envision, where you're communicating the broader concept of your design system. I think this is actually really interesting because as a developer, sometimes it's so binary, ones and zeros. But I know that I'm from the UK, you're from America, and we could both walk into a McDonald's or a Starbucks in each country and know exactly what to order and have zero problems ordering it because everything is identical. 
And when you're like a big corporation, and especially with the things like design systems, when you say to somebody, oh, make a PowerPoint, you're not making a PowerPoint from scratch. There's templates, there's documentation, there's certain font choices, certain colors allowed, certain colors not allowed. And all these things have been built over a long time to make a visual representation. And I think the biggest way developers see this and it sounds so bad to say, is when a big corporate company goes, we've created our own font. That's the only way a developer ever goes, why have they created their own font? What's wrong with San Francisco? It's like, because to the companies, it's about that branding, that familiarity built over decades and years and years and years. And as I said about you're in America, I'm in England, walking into a Starbucks, they literally look exactly the same at this point. And you would think, surely they wouldn't. Like you, you think in your head like, yeah, but America's like a very different country. And this is just two Western countries. I'm sure if we walked into a Starbucks in Thailand or Singapore, it would still look exactly the same and work exactly the same down to their technology because this kind of aspect of the world has been built for so long is that underlying recognition to brands, to colors, to even environments and how a Starbucks makes you feel and how Starbucks is different to Dunkin' Donuts. If you remove the logos, you have different feels in both of them without even looking at the logo or the coffee. They just feel differently. And that's what design systems have done to the world. But that's what I mean when I think developers, as you were saying, it's very like, a design system's just components and some colors, but it's not to a lot of the bigger world. It's like there's people that spend a lot of time and money creating corporate brands. When I say corporate brands, I more mean that corporations will normally have the money to invest thousands of dollars in which color of gray is better, <laughs> you know, which one represents my company better. Yeah, and I think that, that that's a really interesting point. Like when you think about an example that I like to use a lot of times is like an acquisition. Let's say Starbucks, you know, since we're talking about Starbucks, acquires a smaller coffee roaster or something. And that coffee roaster has like its own brand, its own design language, like etc. Ultimately, what Starbucks is going to do is there's going to be some kind of like migration into like all of the Starbucksification of that brand. One thing that I really like about design systems is, is that they're almost like aspirational, at least when they're done right. They're done aspirationally. And the idea is, is that like this is the line and everything should kind of like rise up to this line eventually. So if you're a tech company, and you do an acquisition, that product should eventually come into adherence with this thing. Now, you might have a component library that like in the interim looks exactly like the other thing, you know, so you have that kind of connective tissue of the components and you're building up your whole library. So eventually you can move it into adherence with this design system. But I do feel like separating the notion of like design systems and component libraries for engineers is like a very valuable, if people take one thing away from this episode, it's that design systems and component libraries are not the same thing. And it's a good thing. Very much so. And I think one of the biggest things that I find really hard, this is where you may really be able to help is I'm already spending all of my time trying to just get the code out. How do I have time start documenting how the colors should look or the fonts we should choose? You know, surely just getting out the door is better than spending all day setting up Storybook. So how has Storybook made that easier? How do people get into it easier and not feel like it's a chore and that thing they have to keep updating? Yeah, I love this question so much because I think it is a little bit of a mindset shift. For me, I'm a strong proponent of 
progressive enhancement. And there's like the web version of progressive enhancement, but just the philosophy of progressive enhancement. We're going to get something out there. And that is the most important thing. Make it work, make it right, make it fast, right? That's kind of like the process in which we work in web development. I really like this. Like, like for me, getting that page up is the most important thing. If it's messy, you know, if it's all over the place, who gives a shit? What matters is that it's out. Now, I think that Storybook is actually like really well positioned to do this type of workflow. And I think up to this point, the communication around Storybook has really been about design systems and component libraries and working from the bottom up, making sure that you have a strong base foundation of components and then building your app up from there. I actually don't think that that's the way that engineers work. I think it's the way that designers work, but it's not the way that engineers work. We get it out there and then we kind of like backfill things as we need. So Storybook's really well positioned to do application first type of development where you might develop like a whole page and then as your parts of that page grow in complexity, you actually start pulling those out and testing them in isolation. And so I actually really like this kind of like breadth first model of testing in Storybook where you actually like do a full page kind of separated from data and kind of like enforcing that really good interface of like props, making sure that it all works. You kind of go into the app, you connect it into your GraphQL query or, or, or however, and then like the page works. And then like things start getting a little more complicated, right? So like your title, Let's say that maybe you have like something simple, like just a name, like reading a person by their name. Well, there's a, a lot of layers of complexity just in like putting text on the page. Maybe you truncate first and last name, but the person hasn't put a last name. And so like you have like some like stray comma, maybe they don't have like a name at all. And so it just says like, hello, comma, space, exclamation point. And you didn't account for that. Maybe they used an emoji and you don't actually properly encode the emoji. Or like if they have a really long name and it just gets truncated instead of like wrapping the way you want on mobile. There's like so many issues that you may want to solve specific to a component that now you can actually like kind of have that core view still in Storybook, but then pull out this like grading components, if you will, and make cases for every single thing that you care about. Long name, short name, emoji, no name, right to left, whatever you want, you can kind of build out these stories for that component as the complexity actually rises up in your app instead of trying to do the design way of like thinking about all of the possible things that could happen in the universe up front and then like delivering that to an engineer as a you know an artifact that covers everything because you know we know that it just it never does there's always something right like there's always something to fix so i actually really like that workflow where you started a page and then can pull components out into their own component stories as the complexity grows for those individual pieces I find that preaching these kind of things, you know, I don't want to come on here and preach like I'm the world's best developer at doing all these things because I am not. You know, if I was to describe my workflow, I'm very lucky to use Redword that has storybook, mock tests, and like unit tests all built in. How many of my components and web pages and things actually have them? Probably about 10%. And the simple answer is, well, half the time I've built the component plus the logic plus the styles in the web page and then gone, that's good enough and moved on. I've never then put it into Storybook or wrote a proper story. And it's them extra steps that I always think to myself, you know, how could I increase stability of my application? It's not to go start writing loads of new code. It's to start updating your storybook, start updating your, you know, your mocks, your unit tests. And the thing that gets me is it's really hard because 
how often does the golden path happen in web developers? We would like to think it happens, you know, 90% of the time and no one ever sees an error message or a null or it just completely crashes. And there's so often, and look, I hold up my hand and say this all the time, is that I code the golden path and gone, that's good enough. I can move on to the next task. And then like, I've tested it. It works. Good job. And then, you know, one of your customers has literally WWE chair slammed the, the submit button 20 times and completely broke it. Yeah, you never wrote any tests. And what they're seeing now is like the Wild West. I always find it a really hard question. Is like, in my brain, how can I make it easier to say, just write a small test, you know? Because to me, it's like, as soon as I go, I need to write a storybook test. It's, I need to write a storybook test. I need to write a storybook, a unit test, a Cypress test. All of the things and it's like, whoa, that's too much. I've got this next task to do. You know what I mean? No, I totally agree. And I think that for me, it's about knowing where the the continuum of these things. I think as engineers, we don't like to do things more than once, right? Like you want to solve it once and for all. And I think that we have a really good strategy for managing that in terms of unit tests. Because I think unit tests are the easiest thing to write. It's a way to check the box, but it's not particularly effective, a unit test. And they're brittle and like, whatever. Like, we all know that you like unit tests are not the best way to like test software. However, like as the world goes more and more into UI, I think that we need to develop like a better hygiene for testing things and like understanding like where the like where the various tools begin and end just like they have this idea of snapshots but it's a snapshot of the code which is like hilarious to me isn't that what version control is for <laughs> right exactly yeah yeah i know that the code changed i saw it in the diff already I, well i guess that like, this is like it's the thing that makes it to the browser but that's not useful because the thing is is that internet explorer renders different than safari which renders different than like chrome and like i need to know that it didn't change in any of those browsers i need to know that the user sees the same thing i can't tell from the code if this component actually even legitimately rendered or not i think that Anything that you're doing in snapshots in like Jest right now, that's probably already something that you should be doing inside of Storybook, in my opinion. And then also like, yeah, there's going to be Cypress stuff like, you know, testing your happy path, like making sure that a user can like log in and pay you. That's great stuff to have in like an end to end test suite like Cypress. Can they log in? Can they pay? Honestly, for me, those are the only two tests that I really care about in Cypress. And I feel like what we're exploring in Storybook is this idea that maybe you can write tests for UI only once. I get this bug. I know the UI is bad. I fix it. But then I put a test case in there so that I know that I don't have to fix it again, right? And so then when my chromatic runs in CI, I have the confidence, like this wall at my back of like tests of like, okay, I know that I already like solved that. So like if something else happens, like this is kind of a new use case. I've been thinking about this language. I think UI is kind of fun because there's a lot of, unlike various other forms of testing, there's kind of this like soft exception that you can have in UI where it works, but it looks bad. And something that I like about Storybook is being able to test cases, like add test to things that work but look bad. And it kind of breaks up that flow a little bit of like, hey, here's an extreme case where this thing, this view totally breaks down. I'm going to put it in there because we've had a user report for it. I can't fix it right now, but at some point I'm going to come back to that and make this view look better. And I already have all of the like the criteria set up for it. Those kinds of things I think are really fascinating. And I really hope to explore some of that as I help teach people like, you know, like, hey, Storybook really isn't just for design systems and component libraries anymore. I think this is we're missing the boat on like pages and flows and even component libraries. I think there's a lot that we can uh, gain from a Storybook chromatic setup. It's great to know I'm not the only one that finds these things daunting. 
And it's not that we shouldn't do them. It's that it's okay not to do 100%. And it's about incremental. You know, I always like to think that I'm like a, a pottery person. When I write code, I like to think I'm like a pottery person, whatever they are called. I have no clue. Uh, and I've never made a pot before. But, you know, you start with a lump of clay and, you know, you're molding it and it takes time. The first mold doesn't look like what it's meant to be. But then as you spend more time, it gets more to the point, to the point where now all the logic works, i.e. it looks like a mug. And that's when you paint it <laughs> and, and the paint is put, making it pretty. And I think the perfect example of this is when you need to build something, how often do you build things? Let's take a, a form, for example. Every company probably has a button component and an input component. But how, how much time do you spend actually thinking, I'm just going to use the default button first just to test the on click. Oh, it all works with the default button, the default input, and then you style it to the company's button and the company's way of doing these things. You know, I think it's such an interesting way. Like, I feel like nobody talks about this, but I feel like I'm the only person that feels like they're shaping their code as they're going along. It's just not defined at the beginning. You're just working your way up instead of just saying, going top down UI first and then be like logic second. Yeah, no, I think that's really important because I think that so many times like we get in this mindset of like, I want to do it once and I want to get it right the first time. And I feel like that's the wrong way to do it. You actually get a lot of benefit if you just open your mind to doing it twice, <laughs> right? And saying like, okay, I'm going to do it twice right now and know that that's actually the way that I ensure never thinking about this problem again. I'm bad at it too. When I was running React Podcast, every episode of the 123 episodes was me doing it once i had no process in place i was just like running and gunning and like getting an episode out every time and so as i've kind of matured a little bit i have realized that i need to be okay with like everything being like a two-step process i'm gonna do it and i'm gonna document it for later so the next time i can actually run through it and like stop running around with like why does it take so long to do every episode every 127 like three of these episodes has been the same level of pain and it's because I didn't take that second step of saying like, okay, this is the last time I think about this, right? Like this is the last time I do this without some kind of checklist. And I don't know, it's hard. I don't think we necessarily like to work that way, but man, the benefits, it's like ridiculous. I think Anthony, you were talking about this the other day. It's like spaced repetition. Like that's the way to learn anything. If you're dedicated to it, you can learn anything that way. Do people do it? No. <laughs> Yeah, I, I go on a whole rant about spaced repetition. Like it's the only learning method that there's like science behind it. Saying like, if you do this, you will learn things. That sounds like a nice deal. But like you said, it takes discipline because it's a, it's a technique that involves, it's like flashcards done systematically is how I would describe it. But um, I want to get to some other topics here. So are there any last things about Chromatic Storybook that you have think people should have an eye on? Yeah, so I think 6.5 is a really cool release. There's a lot of cool stuff in the pipeline, but two things to really keep an eye out for. The test runner, which allows you to actually, again, we think about this as like a GUI for testing library. So like if you're doing a lot of this kind of testing, like putting something in the DOM, even if it's like JS DOM, some kind of virtual DOM, and then like running tests on it, you can do that in Storybook. Super cool. Just reusing the tests that you already have written. But beyond that is this idea of play functions and play functions are freaking sick. It's a way that you can compose stories I'll just use an example. I can write stories now where it's like I have an empty form and then I have like a filled in form and then like a failed form. And now with play functions and component story format three, I can take that empty form and then spread it out over the other tests and then just add my like async commands to like add the input data. 
it's almost like before each, except I get to spread the before each state into like each of them. I love it. Like it feels so much more like code than like like before each and like creating tests like that. Love it. It's the best. Anyway, that's it. Those are my two things on, uh, you know, what to look for in a storybook. I would love to talk about React 18. How do you feel about React 18 being out? <laughs> Honestly, like I saw that it was announced yesterday and I was actually kind of surprised. It's been like, I don't know, four years that we've been talking about concurrent mode. <laughs> or like concurrent features, all that kind of stuff. I don't mean to laugh. I like, I understand it's hard work. This is like a totally new paradigm, but like just laughing because like in JavaScript years, that is eons. It is such a long amount of time. And so I was actually, it, it felt surreal to be like, oh wow, like 18 is actually out. Not like 18 beta, 18 RC, like 18 is on NPM. That is nuts just because it took so much work to get here. I'm super excited about that. I think that what is going to happen is, is that Unlike hooks, where everyone could just start using hooks on day one, this is not going to be a thing where it's like people can start using this on day one. You can in little ways, but it's really going to depend on a lot of the like downstream libraries and integrations adopting this to where you actually like see the benefit of this and be able to like opt in in your own code. Okay, well, let's say I don't want to take your advice at all. I go upgrade my app right now to React 18. What should I do and how is it going to break? Okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, great question. Okay, so here's the thing is it won't actually. So and this is like maybe the coolest thing. So they have this gradual adoption strategy for React 18. And it's honestly like it's glorious. It's my absolute favorite thing that the React team has ever done. And I think that it is why this release took so much time. You can today install React 18, not change any code, and it'll run the same. Like it'll actually run the same way, which is really freaking cool. So it's a Semver lie then. So it's a bump in the major version without actually introducing breaking changes. <laughs> okay, I think it, that I might be wrong. There might be, there are a couple of heuristic changes. So I know that there's the difference in how the actual root DOM renders and there's a slight syntax change. So will it give me a warning if I don't have that syntax change? Yeah, so what you're going to get is if you run it on 17, you're going to get a warning in the console in development mode. It says, hey, you're running this in like basically like a compatibility mode. Like, do you remember when like maybe IE9 had like an IE7 compatibility mode and you could turn it on and it just used the IE7 renderer? I've never developed for IE. I used IE as a small child. I think I'm showing my age right now. Chris, do you remember that? I'm the youngest one here. <laughs> I'm only 25, so, you know, it shows my age even worse. <laughs> this is old guy web developer stuff. I remember using IE plenty of times. I was not a web developer at the time. Uh, effectively, it uses kind of like a compatibility mode. So, like, it basically just runs exactly the same as 17, which is great because it means that you can gradually step into this. You can upgrade to 18 without having to think about concurrent features at all, which is great. Now, there is this new root change. So there's the legacy root API, which is now I can't even remember what it's called. Was it create root or no render? It's just reactdom.render, right? Yeah. And you can import the render function and then you don't have to write reactdom.render. That's the real pro move right there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that's now as of 18, that's called the legacy root API. And that is the way that you like effectively use like 17 style rendering inside of React 18. So that's why if you don't change anything, everything should work exactly the way that it has in the past. My understanding is that if it doesn't, then it's a bug. Now, what you do if you want to opt in to kind of like the React 18 concurrent rendering and all of the things that will break because of that, um, you change that from React 
dom.render to react the create root API, which now splits out the root creation from the DOM element and then the rendering to that. So you do react dom.create element, you give it the element that you want, like the DOM element. So document.get element by ID or whatever. And I do have a tutorial for this actually that I wrote when you first dropped the beta. So that'll be linked in the show notes as well if people want to check that out. Cool. Yeah. And I guess if we're talking about tutorials too, I have a, a little egghead course on migrating a React app to React 18. And it covers pretty much all of the pitfalls. Like when you actually do enable that new route, all of the APIs that actually did change, like the hook heuristics that changed some of the kind of like weird class things that you needed to know about, all based on like how updates get flushed to the DOM and compensating for some of those new changes. So yeah, I can link to that as well. That's basically it. A couple of state update and like DOM flushing like heuristics changed. So you do need to compensate for those. I know that the render callback is no longer in existence. So if you use that third argument to react dom.render, you have some other things that you need to do now. And there's a myriad of uh, examples that exist on the internet that you could draw from, which kind of brings me back to the React working group. I feel like the React working group kind of represents like React learning how to manage an open source project in concentric circles. React core team has like kind of always worked in like the Facebook ecosystem and then ad hoc through the React repo gotten feedback from people or like these secret channels uh, that various people have been a part of in the past to be like, hey, we're floating this idea. Yeah, there hasn't been very clear mechanisms and RFCs and the kind of things you would expect from like an actual open source kind of project. Right, exactly. And so one of the really cool things about the React Working Group, they've basically developed a format for talking about like pretty big changes with the ecosystem. It's about like concentric circles. So you have React Core and Facebook, and they're like, you know, kind of like building all of this stuff. And then they kind of like float this idea to like the working group and say like, hey, these are the APIs that we're super interested in adding. This is the way that we've implemented knowing the stuff that we know. But then also, you know, like there's a gazillion people who use Redux. There's a gazillion people who use Apollo, like do these APIs work for your libraries and map to the way that we need to think about them. And then it's a closed group of people that represent a number of those like big open source libraries or education programs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, like Mark from Redux is in there. And are there people though from things like Next or Gatsby? Yeah, so there's a lot of representation from like a lot, particularly Next, because I know React works, I think they have an ongoing meeting with the Next and Google folks around features in Next, because, you know, it's like the 900 pound gorilla in the front end React website building space. Is there anyone from Remix, though, in the working group? Good question. I don't have a strong memory of uh, all the people that are in there right now. It's been growing consistently. If you want anyone from Redwood to be there, just let us know. Yeah, 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 for sure. I don't have any control over who does that. Yeah, I'm totally messing with you. I'm not putting you on the spot, so don't even worry about it. Yeah, it's a really cool program because then it kind of like it limits the surface area of points of connection. So then it's like, okay, these are people who represent these various open source groups. And then they take that messaging and talk with their communities about what this would mean for them, how they adopt it, how they bring it into the library, how they adapt to these new changes. And then from there, it kind of like, you know, eventually it goes out into the broader community at large. And I think it's just a really cool way to do it. I've been really impressed with the way that they've done it. I think that it mitigated a lot of frustration that could have been seen this week. I really appreciate it. There's tons of questions I have about React 18, and I probably should have read 
more than one article about React 18 to this point. Every time I've read an article or try to read an article about React 18, it feels like a snooze fest. It just, to me, what's the flashy thing? There's nothing flashy. It's just loads of background things. And everyone's been talking about this concurrent mode for like years. And what, is this the update with it? And really, what is it? I mean, I'm curious about server components. I feel like server components is the closest thing to a big flashy feature that has supposedly been enabled by all this stuff. So are server components enabled now? It feels like we're much more just going to see something like Next.js take the flashy component of React 18 and be like, this is our thing. We've worked so hard on doing this. Yeah, I think that is an interesting feeling. And I think that a lot of people feel that way. And I think that it represents a little bit of kind of a maturity of where we're at as React community. Our focus now more is in what frameworks are delivering to us, right? Like what Redwood's providing us over Next or what uh, Remix is providing us over Gatsby. Like we're thinking about it from like a, a layer up. And I think that that's actually like an interesting place to be. I actually really like the idea of thinking about like, okay, like I understand that React is the tool with which I want to author my components. So almost like a language for like combining style, interaction and markup. But really the thing that I interact with, the thing that actually like provides me the most value as a business or a company is actually the framework level and the integrations that that provides for me. I think it's actually a good thing personally that like this release of React is boring because I think that it demonstrates a maturity of the distributions of React and an acknowledgement that people are actually getting more value from those frameworks, almost like an intermediary. I almost see it like as like, now I'm going to use another old guy analogy, but basically like Rails is the thing that gained a lot of like traction in the Ruby community for building websites. But a lot of it was built on this thing called Rack. Basically like there's this other tool in the middle that actually like makes all of like the HTTP stuff easy. And then also like there's other stuff, right? Like active record is really, in my opinion, like the really the crown jewel of Rails. Like that's the thing that makes Rails Rails. And I think that that is maybe like a better analogy. But like I feel like people will naturally care less about React unless you're a framework author or like a component library author. And people actually building things, they're going to identify more as Remix developers or Redwood developers over time and less as like React developers. This is such a controversial take, but I completely agree with you. Like some people are extremely anti what you just said, but I agree. I think this is absolutely the direction all of this should go. And I was going to say, you know, no breaking changes. I got to do something to keep me in a job. That's where the frameworks are at right now, right? Like if you want to live on the edge, Remix, and that's where I'd go if I want the rush of uh, things rapidly changing all the time. You'll never run out of things to do, let me tell you. Exactly. You know, working in a big corporation and think, hmm, how can I keep myself in a job for six months? Maybe it's adding uh, React suspension to every single component. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, you know, it's so funny. It is, I, I feel like it is controversial from this side. Like if you if you come from the side of like wanting to diminish people for trying to build things and like have some kind of bar. Oh, you have to know that at least all of these things if you want to be considered a web developer. And like, I think that's bullshit, right? Like if you look at history, people just don't identify as like PHP developers. It's like Laravel like or WordPress. Yeah, and this is my take and why I think this is a controversial take is because people say you should identify as 
a JavaScript developer, or you should identify as a software engineer. You shouldn't have any specialty at all. And it's like, I think actually when your boots on the ground, you're trying to get a job. I think that's terrible advice. I think that's really bad advice to get beginners. I think that if you specialize in React, you're going to get a job a lot faster. And if you're a junior dev who says, I'm a software engineer, and they're like, well, what do you do? Like, oh, I engineer software. Honestly, I feel like it's almost admitting that like, being a React developer is no longer like a specialization. The specialization of being a React developer is going to be either like, oh, I'm really good with frameworks or I'm really good at React performance optimization or I'm really good at React to Canvas or like kind of like alternative uses of React, right? Like, you know, our React 3JS or something like that. Those are the specializations, right? Like being a React developer is a, a, a generalization at this point, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, we had a hydrogen episode and like running React on the edge is an example of the specialization now. Totally. Yeah. And it's that thing of like the front end is now like such a weird area because we're seeing React in the back end that totally just goes to the client. We've seen React in the front end. We're seeing like front end being split up to into a back end and a front end. Like I think the biggest thing about it is that there's no one title to truly define what you are. Because we all like to say our strongest points, someone's strongest point could be Redux front to back. And they would own me every single time on creating like this everything Redux. But that's still technically a React developer, if you really want to use that analogy. Or someone who can make really good UIs in React is completely different. And then it's the thing of like, maybe we all should just go back to we're just javascript engineers typescript engineers everyone likes to use them two words are we even engineers no but we kind of call ourselves that these days because cooler than a developer now i think the hardest thing about it all is knowing where we sit in our abilities and where we do really well because the floor is forever changing and we're so easy to look at articles about like x and think i should be using x instead of y what's wrong with y nothing it's just x and is now better this is actually a really good example all three of us are going to remix conf someone said to me why are you going to remix conf you don't do remix i was like yet i'm not dying on any hill here redwood nextjs remix they're all really good at their giving use cases you should never feel like shame for not using one of them over the other like People that use Gatsby today, there's still really good use cases for Gatsby, but now Gatsby is like shamed upon. You're a bad developer if you use Gatsby, but no, Gatsby is still really, really good. If you're going to build a blog, probably easier to build it in Gatsby than even Next. It's just, you know, we live in these Twitter spheres. Uh, if we used to have like React is everything, Next.js is currently everything. Oh, why are you even coding in React? Everyone's talking about Solid right now. You know, we should all move to Solid tomorrow. And it's that thing of like, Solid is pretty good, don't get me wrong but what we got over here is still good enough and do our end customers really care what it's built in can they really even tell can they tell a bootstrap 3 dashboard from the current best tailwind design that you can find i think the answer is sadly no yeah and it's interesting because what we do especially you talk about twitter factoring into this there's an interesting thing happening right now where there's a lot of developer advocacy you know and the way that you sell stuff is to make the problem seem really big 
and the solution to sound really easy and for your thing to be like, you know, the clear solution in any given department. That's it. Like you make the problem big, you make the solution easy and, you know, whatever. And I think that we have a lot of people right now in this space, right? Like we have this rapidly developing space of content creation around coding libraries, like whether that be someone who's like just spitting out memes on a Twitter account or people like doing YouTube videos all the time on Svelte. There's this like cycle and like it's not really designed to help anyone solve problems. It's just designed to get you to think that you should use this other thing. It's all like very attention grabby. And I don't know. I mean, it is where we're at. And I think that for the person who is able to hold on to like what they're actually in this industry for, like the more the merrier, right? Like I want to have people who are excited about this technology that I am moving into and have some like path laid out in front of me. But like if you are insecure about your own vision for yourself, there are any number of people who like want to give you a hit of whatever they're trying to get rid of. I don't know. I, I definitely think that it takes a level of confidence to operate in this industry right now. I mean, like I've never used Redux and it's because like I never had an opportunity to in evaluating it. I knew I didn't need it in the things that I was using. So I've never used it. So like that whole hype cycle of like, oh, yeah, it's the greatest thing ever. Like, oh, now we all hate it. And like, oh, now it finally has some kind of like general utility that like people like uh, kind of like loosely understand. I avoided the whole thing just because it's like I, like it didn't serve me. And so it's like I didn't care and it didn't serve me. And so I feel like knowing where you're headed it makes it a lot easier to kind of like pass all of like the hawkers trying to like get a piece of your wallet. I think it's really hard to know what to jump on and what to not. For example, you've just said to me, React 18, there's no breaking changes. So, you know, you could just stick on what you do on 17. So when's the point that you go, yeah, maybe I should start using suspense, you know, and that may not be in some companies until a year or two from now, because it just doesn't make sense to spend the time. If it is such a barrier that I do not know, it just may not be the right time. And I think it's always that thing of like, we get so caught up on like, it's been out a day and someone with 200,000 Twitter followers has said, I converted my whole application in four hours. This is the best thing in the world. And it's like, I need to go do that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I don't think you do. I mean, like, you know, if you want to, like, cool. I don't think it'll be painful for you. But like, I generally, in my profession, I go to where the money's at or where I think the money's going to be. And so the thing is like, there's no value, like there's no value to you to upgrade React 18 for shits and giggles. Do it when your framework adopts it or you do it when the framework is fully tested it out. Like that's when you're like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, like I guess it's maybe my time to do it, right? Or like when a library that you have that has a new feature, like and it only works on React 18, it's like, okay, cool. I guess that's the thing. Like, but like look for the carrots, right? Like chase the carrots and <laughs> like avoid the sticks. To take your analogy further, do things with the least resistance. And sometimes the least resistance is just waiting. We've seen that with hooks. I remember when hooks first came out, everyone's like, I'm going to build 20,000 hooks myself. Two years later, it's pretty much hardly anyone builds a hook and they just use someone else's that is on NPM. Yeah, I mean, even worse, imagine you used Snowpack. Snowpack doesn't exist anymore. There's people who spent like two years building stuff with Snowpack. The tool's dead. It's effectively over. So waiting can definitely be a virtue. I think just experimenting with the tools, like I always say, like if there's any tool you've been hearing about for like a year, 
cordoned off like a couple hours in a single day to just do a hello world with it. You don't gotta migrate your entire app and be like, all right, I get it. I understand why people are talking about it. I can see why it has these kind of use cases, but that helps you kind of break through the hype cycle and be like, let me just at least understand this myself so I don't have to just keep going by proxy of other people's opinions of this thing. That's where we really get into trouble here is that everyone just like says, well, this person said this about this, so it means that this is good for this. It's like, well, okay, have you done that though? And that really goes a long way. Having those types of projects, what you believe is kind of like hello world for you. I think that's a really important thing. Like for me, I have this idea that I work with for myself, which is just like, what's the time to first fetch in evaluating a front end library? That's a good one. That's a very good hello world. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Like how many concepts do I need to know in order to like make a fetch request and then spit out a list with also an error state in case that thing goes wrong? And then, you know, maybe like a spin or two. There's a lot of information just in that tiny thing. And like I use a free API, you know, you use like, you know, everybody now uses a Pokedex or whatever. You can find something about, I don't know, beer or dogs, if you prefer to think about beer or dogs while you're doing this kind of thing. But then there's also like things that are like a level up. I think Squirtle, a Squirtle, I was still on the Pokemon, uh, Wordle is such a beautiful, isolated little build it and learn about a framework type of thing. If you see a new front end framework you're interested in and build Wordle in it, damn, there's a lot that you can take away from that experience. Yeah, or even Tic-Tac-Toe. Tic-Tac-Toe. A game is actually a hello world that goes far beyond a website. Hello world, a website, hello world can be pretty dang simple. So yeah. I was just going to say my final joke, and this is why I'm at least waiting five years to learn about Bitcoin. okay it could all be over by then we'll see (laughs) we also didn't get to hit on the inevitable and eventual return of react podcast which i'm sure will be a thing at some point or lunch dev or any of that kind of stuff but those are topics for your eventual third appearance so thank you so much michael chan it's all business today (laughs) this has been a really fantastic conversation and um any final parting words for the listeners I guess just, uh, yeah, if you want to hang out with some awesome people and not get distracted by all the shiny things and kind of keep on, you know, what your goal is, I think our Discord community is a really great place to do that. It's um, discord.gg slash lunch dev. Yeah, that's it. Find me on Twitter at Chantastic. I hang out there too. Awesome. Thank you, man. Yeah. Thank you. Well, next time I'll speak to you, you'll probably find out if I have legs or not in yes. Utah at Remix. <laughs> <laughs> you had no legs this whole time. No legs, like, I know. This whole time. That was-